Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, A Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Christy and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Tuesday, January 22nd. Today we are reading from the big book. We're on page 105 and we are at the second full paragraph starting with Our Homes Have Been Battlegrounds. Today's readers are Deb W., Robin, Marsha, Eddie, and Paula. The reference number for Monday, January 21st, is 3727. EOA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Hoodie to read the 12 steps. Good morning, this is Hoodie, compulsive overeater. Um, the 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to other compulsive readers and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I pass. Thank you, Hoodie. I will now ask Marietta to read the 12 traditions, please. Hi, this is Marietta, the 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. 
Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money and property and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, Every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no outside out, has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. And I pass. Thank you, Marietta. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book. We're on page 105. We're in the second full paragraph that begins with our homes have been battlegrounds. I will ask Deb W. to begin reading, please. Good morning, Christy. Good morning, Vision for You. My name is Devin, a recovered compulsive overeater. Our homes have been battlegrounds, many an evening. In the morning, we have kissed and made up. Our friends have counseled, chucking the men, and we have done so with finality, only to be back in a little while, hoping, always hoping. Our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. We have believed them when no one else could or would. Then in days, weeks, or months, a fresh outburst. Um, I'm going to stop there. I remember all too well how my house was a battleground. Um, I was restless, irritable, and discontent, basically, you know, um, trying to maintain sobriety with my food, and it just, you know, wasn't happening for me. You know, um, how is someone to live with me like this, you know? Um, how much do we expect from our loved ones? I mean, they've gone through so much with us with the wreckage that we have created around us. Um, and I used to think, 
that it would it was only affecting me. My eating was just my, you know, um, solitary uh, nemesis that I had to deal with. When in reality, um, it was my symptom, and I was just so. I mean, my mouth was running off, you know, and I my anger. I mean, it was just absolutely ugly. So I mean, how do we expect these people? to keep going on with us when we're living like we're on a roller coaster um, most of our um, time. And so our men have sworn great some oaths. They have, they were through drinking forever. You know, I remember saying this, um, I'm not going to put this item in my mouth ever again. And, you know, telling my husband and saying, you know, um, if you see me doing this or seeing me, I mean, it's not his responsibility I had to come to terms with my disease. I had to realize that, you know, this is a disease. I am powerless over it, and I have to implement these steps if I'm going to get better. And so um, um, this this paragraph is just so powerful to me because looking back, um, you know, in the beginning of my um my time working the steps, I used to feel so bad about it. And today I can look at it, you know, it's what happened. Um, it is my asset today because I don't live in that space anymore. And um, with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Deb. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? This, this is, is Paula. May I share? Sure, Paula and then Kim. Go ahead, Paula. Thank you. Well, it starts here. Our homes have been battlegrounds. You know, that isn't a, a description that we, we like to think of as a home. But there's where it is. And, you know, we're coming here, and this is the chapter to the wives. But it isn't. It, no man is an island, and it involves everyone in our lives. And the strangest thing, it's the closest ones, the ones that we are closest to. And it says, in the morning, we've kissed and made up. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that word, hoping, always hoping, to a feeling that what is wanted will happen, that's hope. It can't. You can want it all you want. It can't not happen. And then it says, men have sworn great solemn oaths. And I will tell you, I've been both sides of that coin. I've listened to the oaths, and I've said the oaths. Both well-intentioned, well-meaning at the time they were said. But this disease takes precedence over any oath, any oath. And then it said, we have believed them when no one else could or would. Again, hope came into play. Then in days, weeks, or months, a fresh outburst does not, in, in the doctor's opinion, this is what he's saying to those that are on the fine line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives. There it is, the little children. There it is, very clearly written here. This is what it involves. This is what it truly is. You know, homes are different, but this disease takes you to the same place, that battleground. Thank you for allowing me to share. And with that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Kim, go ahead. Good morning, Christy. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. I'm just going to kind of back up what Paula said with some of the literature. You know, our homes are battlegrounds. Our men had sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. And, you know, we as compulsive overeaters who are on this line right now, um, we, I like to look at this as what I have done. 
you know, what have I put my family through? All those solemn notes. This time will be different. This time will be different. Why did they think my experience in L.A. was going to be any different than the self-help book that I, that I had read or the latest diet program that I had tried? And no matter how many solemn oaths I made, the fact was that my actions, my actions were so loud that they couldn't hear a word that I was saying. So what were those actions? So I'm going to go back to page 61 in the book to, to show you how our family views us, what they are seeing, what are our actions telling them. It talks here about the actor who's trying to run the show. So this is from page 61. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious as the case may be. Still the play does not suit him. Admitting he might be somewhat at fault, he is sure the other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only he manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? And does, do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? So those, those actions of us, back when, before we started these action steps, that is the reason that our homes are battlegrounds. And that is the reason that our family needs to work this program because of our actions. And it's so essential. I think it's such a good learning experience to hear the, the side of the wise, to see what we have created in our homes. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? This is Helena. May I share? This is Katie. Sure. Uh, Helena, Katie, and then Sharon. Go ahead, Helena. Hi. I just would like to say that it is amazing to me that we can contrast this behavior that we had before um, before we came into recovery with the behavior that we are taught later. And on page 84, it says, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. And how wonderful is that, that we do not have to live this way anymore. Pass. Thank you, Helena. Katie, go ahead. This is Katie. Um, hi, I'm Katie, a compulsive overeater. Our homes have been battlegrounds many an evening. In the morning, we have kissed and made up. This is how this is how I grew up, um, both being the uh, addict myself and living with addicts. And so, you know, I just thought this is the way my life was going to be forever, even um, in recovery. But um, the thing is, is that when I got abstinent, I didn't. Um, I didn't run and tell my family all about it because I didn't want to hear what they, I didn't want to hear their scoffing and I didn't want to hear um, anything. I had really deteriorated those relationships and this program has taught me new boundaries in those relationships. 
And I am here to tell you that my life today is not a battleground. Um, I've not continued that um, that uh, way of living that I grew up in. And, you know, there's, I don't know how many people are on this line, but if you're new to recovery, um, I can tell you that you don't have to worry about your um, family members accepting this program right away, that you can get um, into recovery and stay um, abstinence without your family. That's what, you know, these hundred and some 300 people on the list are here for, is to help us to get through life one day at a time, free from the obsession and the need to pick up the food. So we don't have to go back to swearing solemn oaths and, um, you know, after months and weeks, picking back up. It doesn't have to be that way anymore. And that's the way, you know, our family members lived, afraid that we would, um, you know, when was that shoe going to drop? When was when were things going to go back to the way they were? And it, it takes years for them to um, really believe you that this time you're going to stay stopped. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Katie. Sharon, go ahead. Good morning. This is Sharon, Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and uh, just very glad to be on the line with you this morning. It says here, our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. Last sentence. Then, in days, weeks, or months, a fresh outburst. Now, I want to admit that I was the one that was swearing great solemn oaths that I would change, I would be different. I would, I would ask for, I would have an outburst. And, and, um, and this was before I got married. Well, I was in, uh, in OA in the rooms. I was in the rooms for 10 years before I got my current recovery. And um, I wasn't married. I remember being in the car with my mother. And any time I was around my mother, there was a fresh outburst. I just could not be around her because she just irritated me to no end. And I knew what was right. I had read that I had read and studied. I'd been in the rooms uh, struggling, yet I was like this uh, alcoholic on, uh, in the doctor's opinion, whose alcoholic problem was so complex and her depression, his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology. And we doubted if even that would have any effect. And I was in the rooms for 10 years with that hanging over my head, never getting the recovery that I have now by the grace of God. But it was me. It was me. I was that person. However, I wasn't an alcoholic. So I could not see as the alcoholic was seeing perhaps that the drinking was the problem. I couldn't see that the food was the reason for the outburst. I couldn't see that the food was the reason that I couldn't, I would ask my mom, oh, I would apologize every time I would have an outburst. I couldn't directly see that it was the result of the food and not having a clean, solid abstinence and not uh, working the steps completely. 
this was what was fueling my outburst, my always saying something. And then after the minute, the moment after I said it, I wanted to grab it back, but I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't control my tongue. I couldn't control my actions. I was constantly asking for forgiveness and then creating the same, doing the same thing over and over again. And I remember so clearly, I was sitting in the back seat of the car. My mom was in the front. My dad was driving. And I said some snarky, snippy thing. And I said, immediately, I apologized to my mother for saying it. I was an adult in my 30s. And she turned around and looked at me. She says, I don't want any more apologies from you. Just change. And I have never forgotten that. It just gripped me like a knife in my chest just change. And I realized that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't change. I couldn't change me. I don't, I've been in the rooms for 10 years. The, the depression, the, the sadness, the sorrow, the despair of knowing that no matter what I did, I could not change. I could not change myself. And um, that's the way the alcoholic ends up it doesn't matter how many solemn oaths. It doesn't matter how much hoping and wishing. We can't change ourselves until we surrender, until we accept help, a power greater than ourselves, until we reach out our hands. Now, maybe other people can do it, but I never could. I tried for 10 years until finally, finally, I was able to... Uh, find the recovery I have now by the grace of God and every day I am so grateful for it because I know that without my recovery I'm back there snarky snipping in despair and misery hurting people and not being able to change and with that I pass. Thanks Sharon. Well, I'm Christy and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and um, you know I had no idea what a minefield I was when I was in active addiction and you know for for the people that you know I was in relationships with um, partners especially I mean you had no idea as a partner of mine when you were going to step on a landmine you know I was <laughs> you know I was not easy to live with and that's an understatement because of my disease if my addiction had me by the throat, then I had you by the throat. Food was first, I was second, and you came in somewhere a distant third. And I had no idea, I had no idea what my behavior was like until I put the food down. Once I put the food down and, um, you know, through navigating the steps with a sponsor and, and following the outline of the big book to recover from compulsive overeating, I realized more and more that I had no idea how to relate to people. Um, I could, you know, the only, the deep and meaningful relationship I had in my life was food. And, um, you know, that's how I, I tried to relate to people was through food. And, uh, you know, I, I remember being just completely confronted with, you know, my behavior. I mean, I was, you know, I remember specifically a partner of mine worked, um, worked a night shift. And, you know, in the evening, 
you know, I mean, I was restless, irritable, and discontent, you know, if I'm to be perfectly honest with myself, pretty much all the time. And I just remember getting in fights. You know, I would, I would start some kind of fight about some random thing that happened that had nothing to do with anything. I would pull something out of thin air, you know, whatever it was. You know, I was mad because you wouldn't leave them all when I wanted to, you know, in 1983. I mean, it was just bizarre, random, restless, irritable, and discontent. And that fight would either allow me to slam the door and leave so I could go get something to eat or it would or it would force your hand at leaving early for work perhaps on the night shift and then once that happened I would be alone with my food I would be alone with my food and that's the only reason I did that and I had no idea I had no idea I did that sort of thing all the time and I had no idea you know, for people, especially me, who thought that my eating only affected me, I mean, after all, I was the person that weighed 340 pounds, um, my behavior affected everyone in my life, everyone I came in contact with. I had no idea how to have relationships with people. My relationships, sadly enough, were with food. And it's only by having the the transformation, the transformation of mind and body that I've had through recovery, especially mind, because that's the greater aspect of my disease, have I been able to learn how to relate to people and um, not food. I mean, you know, when I think about that, that I could relate to food, I mean, that's just sad to me that that was it. That was as deep and meaningful as I got. And uh, I'm just so grateful that, I can look beyond the bag and the vat and the trough of food to a world of people and, um, you know, be a worker among workers and, you know, live in the spirit of love and tolerance and, um, you know, uh, <laughs> just be, be present in the world today. And with that, I will pass. Is there anyone else who would like to share on this paragraph? Leah. Leah, go ahead. Hey, Christy. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Our homes have been battlegrounds many an evening. In the morning, we have kissed and made up. Well, you know, it may be uh, 26 years later, but the memories uh, are still there of this kind of environment. Um, that I created. Uh, Our homes have been battlegrounds. You know, I think of war-torn countries. You know, there's no rest. And with me, there was no rest. Um, Because uh, when you're governed by emotions, um, you are completely unpredictable. Um, You know, it was like walking into a landmine (laughs) in my home. You never knew... uh, what mood, what emotion would be leading me by the nose at that particular moment. There was such unpredictability. It was like a, um, you know, a roller coaster ride. At 3 p.m. I could be on top of the mountain and at 4 p.m. in the pit of despair. And I took everybody around me, whoever uh, loved me, uh, husband, parents, friends, uh, colleagues that I had 
to, you know, that had to interact with me, everybody was buckled in to your seat, hold on tight, because we're going on a ride. Because that's what happens when you're governed by your emotions. There's unpredictability. You know, uh, sometimes you'd have to endure some some sulking or some silent scorn or how about a little bit of rage. You know, you add a little rage into a marriage and anger does to a marriage what the iceberg did to the Titanic. It destroys, it sinks, <laughs> sinks a marriage. So, you know, to some extent, everybody who's involved with the alcoholic is ill. Because years of living with us is almost sure to make anyone neurotic because of that unpredictability. You know, you just have no idea. Grenades are being thrown. Blame is being, you know, uh, offered here and there. So, um, you know, our homes have been battlegrounds many an evening. In the morning we have kissed and made up. Um, it's it's hard to live with someone who's saying, come here, go away. And that's what we do. Come here, I'm feeling horrible, I need some love, I need someone who's going to make me feel valued and someone who's going to make me feel like I'm enough and make me, uh, you know, happy enough. And go away because I feel rotten and I'm in the pit of isolation and I've got deep depression going on. And by the way, have I told you about my suicidal thinking? It's no picnic living with us. It says our friends have counseled chucking the men, and we have done so with finality, only to be back in a little while, hoping, always hoping. Obviously, we're studying Chapter 8 to the wives. This is directed to the people who try to live with us, who try to interact with us. Our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. You know, uh, I went through those great solemn oaths, but, you know, I had to bow to the demands of my disease. I didn't make decisions for compulsive overeating. Are you kidding me? My disease made decisions for me. There was no freedom. I'm the slave. Disease is the master. I always had to pay the piper. So our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. Um, you know, I, certainly I would stop now and then. You know, but this isn't about stopping now and then. I've stopped thousands of times. My spouse supported me thousands of times in those periods of stopping, in those episodes of stopping. How do you not start again? How do you not start again? That's the issue. It says, we have believed them when no one else could or would, then in days, weeks, or months, a fresh outburst. Of course. Of course, because controlled drinking doesn't work for alcoholics. Neither does abstinence, by the way. You know, that's alcoholism. Controlled drinking doesn't work, neither does sobriety. Alcoholics can't drink and they can't not drink. You know why? We don't, alcoholics don't have problem drinking. They have a rough time living. We don't have a problem compulsively overeating. We have a rough time living. So what this program of recovery does is that each of us has little control over the other person's actions and considerably less control over their thinking and little or no control over their emotions. Our only chance, both the spouses and the compulsive overeaters, our only chance to change our partner's behavior is with God's help to change our own. To change our own. Because as in tennis, if one partner stops hitting the ball back, the other soon stops playing tennis. And with that, I pass. Thanks.
Thank you, Leah. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph before we move on? Hi, yes. This is Janice. Um, I heard Janice. So, Janice, why don't you go ahead and then we'll catch other folks when you're done. Thank you. Thank you, Christy. Good morning, Vision for You. My name is Janice. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. You know, I, there there is a reason why this paragraph was included in these first 164 pages. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? You know, these these recovered alcoholics knew knew that this was important information. This was important information. And as we've been talking about here on the line, you know, it described me and it describes the relationships I was having with those who loved me so much, with those who loved me so much. And in specific talking to the wives here, they mention the word loyalty, loyalty, the people who were so loyal to us. Well, I think it includes not only the wives, but in my case, the other family members that watched, my mother, my father, my siblings. And, you know, there is nothing more beautiful than mother love sometimes. You know, my mother watched watched me suffer and could do nothing about it. And my husband watched me suffer and could do nothing about it. You know, but they were so loyal because they loved me so much. And every once in a while they would get a glimpse of the real me. They would get a glimpse of the real me, admitting my powerlessness. Brief, brief as those instances might be, they were mixed up. They were mixed up between that unpredictability and that unreliability. And every once in a while, when I managed to maintain some abstinence for a while, oh, then, then the tide would turn and I would be full of control, trying to control myself and trying to control everybody around me. And then I would slide back into the irresponsibility. And those people who loved me so much, they were, they were at risk always. They were at risk always. But their loyalty was incredible. They did what they could do. They tried as hard as they could try. We have believed them when no one else could or would. We have believed them. They're talking about those people surrounding them, the loved ones. You know, and, and I am I never want to forget how beautiful that was. Even though I was so unaware of it most times, every once in a while I was aware of it. And it made me feel horrible because there was nothing I could do to stop my behavior. I had this sense that inevitably I was going to pick up again, no matter how many thousands of times I stopped. You know, and I was one of those people took solemn oaths that I was true forever. And I said it out loud. I said it out loud. You know, the the unhappiness that we caused, the 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 suffering of people who loved us so much watching us. I don't ever want to forget that. And I'm glad they put that chapter in here because it is a good reminder for me, a good reminder of what happens, but it is, a, is, it is also the way I can help others by remembering who I am and what I'm up against. You know, that what, what um, contact I have with the families of those who are recovering. You know, those, those are the people that I can help by remembering exactly how this chapter applies to me. And with that, I'll pass. 
Thank you, Janice. And who else would like to share on this paragraph? Melanie. Melanie, go ahead. Hi, good morning. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I wanted to add the things that I don't think that I heard other people saying so far, um, simply by saying that um, our homes have been battlegrounds, to say the very least. Um, I was in a position to be able to see things at a horrible place, um, working in a police department, and um, not only was it a battleground, it was a funeral home. It was a cemetery. And in the faces of those babies that would come into the department late at night, wrapped up in just swaddling things, and I was oh, God, I can't even talk about it, the memory of it. This is not small stuff here. What I did to my family and what I saw other families do to other families in a position that I was in in the job that I had at the time, and it goes on generation after generation after generation. It's more than taking money out of the wife's purse. It's more than, than getting a job and screwing that up. It's more than, more than, more than, and it goes on forever and ever. What an amends I have to make. And the thing that I didn't hear mentioned here that I have going, had going for me, too, and I want to say this first, that only the steps brought me away from what I was doing in this home to my husband and my children, that they carry scars from now that I'm making amends for. And the second one is I liked doing it. That's how sick this disease got me, and I got into what I was doing. I liked doing it. I was restless, irritable, and discontent. I loved having a fight. I loved stirring up all this stuff. I loved the power, and I wanted to do it over and over and over again, and I didn't know why. I had no understanding of why. And I rarely had regret and remorse because I thought I was justified. That's the insidiousness of this disease. Because of food? Because of bag of Oreos? You damn betcha. This is a relentless disease. The steps are what brought me to where I'm at today. The faces of those babies in that station sustain me. God has the grace and mercy to carry me. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Melanie. And would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? I will take that as a no. Robin, would you please read the next paragraph? Sure. Hi, this is Robin. I'm a compulsive overeater. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> we seldom had friends at our homes, never knowing how or when the men of the house would appear. We could make few social engagements. We came to live almost alone. When we were invited out, our husbands sneaked so many drinks that they spoiled the occasion. If, on the other hand, they took nothing, their self-pity made them kill joys. Do you mind if I continue the next few sentences, Christy? Um, yeah, why don't you finish up that, you mean that read the next paragraph? Go ahead. Yeah. There was never financial security. Positions were always in jeopardy or gone. An armored car could not have brought the pay envelopes home. The checking account melted like snow in June. Well, these are great paragraphs. To um, they're, they're really about step one. Uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. In case you haven't identified in with the alcoholic yet, this is a good chance to do it. I remember... Um, all the parties that I would go to with my family, all the family engagements and the potlucks and the holiday things. And 
uh, how I would just be totally checked out for the rest of the family, the the people that were there, because I was hovering around the potluck table. I was just going back over and over and over. I was um, returning to the cake over and over, taking little slivers and little slivers and little slivers. I would embarrass my family tremendously by the amount of uh, food I was ingesting. I'd be in the middle of a conversation with somebody, and I'd hop up and go get some more food. And then on the other hand, if I took nothing, if I was, if I happened to be in a diet mentality at the moment, I would be pacing and ready to go home. I would be cutting everybody else's uh, enjoyment short because all I could think about was how I was going to jump out of my skin. I wasn't able to be in a social situation and be comfortable. The The food was what I had always used to... Uh, make it easier for me to be with people. And I'd be in a situation where I was trying to watch what I was eating and I couldn't be in a social situation. So I would um, make my whole family adapt to what it was that I wanted, which was we're leaving in half an hour. We're going home in half an hour. And inevitably, when I got home, I would go in search of the food that I had denied myself while I'd been at the party. And then talking about the checking account melting like snow in June, here I am again. I had the household budget, and I'm borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. I'm going to uh, take out, you know, drive through restaurants while everybody else is at school, spending the grocery money on my food, and then cutting corners for them because I didn't have enough money to bring in the groceries that the rest of the family needed. So I would, uh, you know, try to find ways to buy, I don't know, the the store brands because it was 15 cents cheaper because I had just spent $15 on a, on a Chinese meal for myself for lunch. So if if I'm having any trouble identifying in as an alcoholic, this is where it can happen to see that, yes, indeed, it is, it's very true that I am that kind of person that did these things and stole from my family stole time and energy and love from my family and also stole from the the family pocketbook. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Robin. I also would like to share on these two paragraphs. This is Patricia. May I share? Sure, Patricia. Go ahead. I just wanted to share on this. Um, There was never financial security. For me, um, um, my... Financial security for me was more on the lines of when I had a job. Um, I would stay there. I would really love it in the beginning, but then I found that the boss didn't do me right or um, this was not what I signed up for or whatever. I found um, that selfish, self-centeredness, self-seeking, they didn't do it the way I thought they should, and I would find reasons to quit, you know, and then it's like... um, you know the you know the money would go right back down to one paycheck. You know my husband, you know he, his attitude was, you know I complained every day. So honey, if you don't like it, just leave. You know he said because he got tired of hearing me complaining about it. You know, but it, but I'm learning now that it was all the selfishness. Because if God gave me the job, then He had work in me to do, and I wasn't willing to see that. I wasn't willing to see what God was trying to do. I was just doing my thing still. Anyways, that's what I want to share. Thank you. I pass. Thank you, thank you, Patricia. Who else would like to share on these paragraphs? 
This is Paula. May I ask you? Sure, Paula. Go ahead. Thank you. You know, we all know that uh, in a personal level that this is an isolating disease, but often we didn't realize it's just not you that will isolate. It's the people around you that love you. And this is what this this paragraph clearly states. We seldom had friends at our homes. Now, why would that be? Because we didn't know what to expect at our homes. Was it going to be Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? Doesn't it clearly say that in that book, where it takes you? to places you don't want to go and you don't want to be, and that's it. We had friends at our homes never knowing how or when the men of the house would appear. That was it. And this is the family. These are the loved ones that surround us. We could make few social engagements because we just didn't know. Should we? Shouldn't we? Could we? We came to live almost alone. They're the isolation and the ripple effect. When we're invited out, our husband sneaks so many drinks, they spoil the occasion. Well, there you go. On the other hand, they took nothing. Their self-pity made them kill Joyce. Do you see what I'm doing for you? I'm not having this drink. Do you see the craziness of that? Of a statement like that? They couldn't see it. And you know, on page 22, it says... Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again, even with the family, as the big book says, that he had great affection for. Affection has nothing to do with this disease. It is not a disease of love. Thank you for allowing me to share. With that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? It's Monica. Monica, go ahead. Good morning, Christy. Good morning, everyone. My name is Monica. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I just wanted um, to give the definition for killjoy. A killjoy is a person who spoils the enthusiasm or fun of others. And um, definitely I identify with that. Like with someone else said, you know, if I went somewhere, um, uh, and I got into the food, well, then I was miserable and everybody knew about it. Or if I went and, uh, I, you know, I was just suffering because poor me, poor me, everybody else is eating with impunity and oh, I can't have any of it. Well, then, you know, you all were going to suffer because I couldn't have anything. So, you know, my family was feeling the pain. They were feeling the terror. They were feeling the bewilderment of my actions, well, I was just anesthetizing myself with the food. And how we, um, you know, we're thinking just of ourselves. Just, I was just thinking of myself all the time. This is my self-will, you know, poor me, poor me. And, um, and so, you know, and I seldom had people come to my home. I seldom went out and did things. Because I didn't want you to see me, how fat I was. And poor me, poor me. Um, and um, I guess I will pass with that. Thank you. Thank you, Monica. This is Christy, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I'll jump in here. You know, I, you know, in the interest of time, I will not share the thousands, thousands of examples I have of 
how this disease manifested itself in my life. But, you know, just to give you a few, just to paint a little bit of a picture, um, you know, my partner and I moved to Minnesota um, in 2001, and, you know, her entire family, uh, for the most part, most of her family, the majority of her family lived here. And so the idea was, you know, how nice will this be, right? Her family can come over. Come over and I'll feed them. And uh, I didn't want anyone to come over. I didn't want anyone to come to the house. But, of course, I planned, I planned trips to the grocery store around the idea that someone was going to come over, that people were going to come over. Well, we better buy this in case we have someone drop by. I never wanted people to come by. Do you think I wanted to share my food with people? Never, 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 never. You know, secretly I would think they're going to come over and eat all this food. <laughs> I didn't want that to happen. But, of course, outwardly I sounded like just the, the best hostess on the planet, you know, just always planning for people to drop by and had this vision of myself as the perfect hostess. And, you know, I'll never forget just one example where a nephew came over and um, he didn't like a particular, you know, topping I had for dessert. And so, you know, the next time I went to the grocery store, I bought something that I thought he would enjoy. And I went through three jars of that before he ever set foot in the house again. Nobody came over between me and those three jars of topping, dessert topping. Now, that's just one example. And financial security, you know, I, I, it didn't matter whether I had money in my bank account or not. It, it did not matter. And, um, you know, what I would do is I would plan on writing a bad check. I was going to overdraw the account. I was going to pay the check, you know, the non-sufficient fund fee, and I was going to make it worth my while. You know, I was going to make sure I wasn't going to write a check for $20 and pay that return check fee. Oh, no. Oh, no. I was going to write the check for $100 or more on food so I could stock up, knowing that there was not that much money in my bank account. But that didn't matter. That didn't matter. Who cared? Who cared about, you know, being fiscally responsible? That went out the window. And so did my integrity. And I never wanted to go, I never wanted to go out. I didn't want to participate in any activities. I wouldn't go to movies because, you know, my, the sides of the chairs were digging into my hips at 340 pounds. You know, I stopped going anywhere. Maybe you could get me to go somewhere if I said, well, we'll go have lunch afterwards. That'll be fun. We'll go have lunch afterwards after we go, you know, try to ride a bike or canoe down a river or whatever it was that I didn't want to do. And then when it came right down to it, well, let's not go do that. Let's just go out to lunch. That's really all I feel like doing. I don't want to exert any energy. But how about we go out to lunch? That sounds fun. Um, you know, those are just a few teeny examples over the course of the decades that this disease had me by the throat. You know, the... Uh, <laughs> It was a horrible, horrible way to live. And I don't live that way today. I don't live that way today. And I'm so grateful. I am so grateful that um, this program has enabled me to put the food down, to stay stopped, to stay stopped.
I mean, that is it's nothing short of a miracle. And if it can happen for me, it can happen for anyone. And with that, I'll pass. Is there anyone else who'd like to share on these two paragraphs? This is Leah. Uh, Judy, I think I heard you. Is that correct? And then Leah, Judy, go ahead. Yeah, this is Judith in Vermont, a compulsive overeater. And um, I can so identify with these paragraphs because going to a party was free food. The only trouble was I could only talk to you for two or at the most three minutes because I was standing at the table with the food and I didn't want to see you to see how much I was eating. So I had to disengage with you, go to a new part of the table, get my food, continue to stay there, continue to eat, engage with somebody new, two minutes, got to change, got to change, got to change. And um, th- anything where there was, quote, free food was um, really, really dangerous. And thank God, in a way, my sponsor taught me to feed, to feast on the fellowship and not the food. And she taught me to, when the hostess came around with her delicacies, um, I would look her in the eye and say, no, thank you, but thank you very much. And I noticed that a lot of people didn't look her in the eye. They just looked at the food and took the food. And so I finally realized that I was not at all insulting her. I was actually giving her a gift, even though I was saying no thank you to something that she'd made. I was making human contact with her. And it made me feel wonderful. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Judith. Leah, go ahead. Thank you so much. Again, you know, Chapter 8 to Wives, it's uh, highlighting... um, you know, how our behavior affects other people. You know, oftentimes uh, there's the attitude that, uh, well, you know, it's it's understandable that the alcoholic roars and rips his or her way through the lives of others, but a compulsive overeater, I mean, we don't, <laughs> we don't affect other people. You know, the only thing that happens for us is our rear end gets bigger and perhaps it's a little bit di- more difficult to run up a flight of steps, but it doesn't affect anybody else. Well, you know, that attitude is blown right out of the water when I take a look at these paragraphs and it sends me down memory lane. For instance, we could make few social engagements. Um, You know, just focusing on my early married life, you know, (laughs) we would get invitations. uh, You know, I would hem and haw about whether I could attend or not, knowing I had no idea what state of mind I was going to be in in two months. Because this disease, again, this disease was my master. I bowed to it. (laughs) I I was not making the decisions in my life. This disease pushed me around. So, uh, you know, I would hesitantly perhaps, uh, you know, RSVP to the positive, and lo and behold, come the day, I would not be able to go. I wouldn't feel like it. I don't feel like it. I can't be around people. I'm not feeling good enough to be around people. Um, I mean, this happened time and time and time again. Very difficult for loved ones. (laughs) There were many times off went my husband off to a social engagement where he was supposed to be, um, you know, escorting his dear wife. But dear wife, of course, is at home sitting on the couch with three pints of ice cream on her lap, making love to its contents. That's where dear wife is. 
or dear wife is sitting in a car in a dark parking lot while hubby, you know, is out attending um, some type of business engagement where wives and spouses are to be in attendance. Dear wife is sitting in a parking lot with bags and boxes on the passenger seat trying to improve a relationship <laughs> with the contents. Again, this, this is not a disease that uh, does not affect other people. This disease takes other people down. And it affects other people. I mean, I clearly remember an engagement party that was scheduled for a very, very dear childhood friend of mine, went to the store, could not find anything to wear, and therefore I couldn't attend. You know, that was it. It's all about me, myself, and I. You know, and, and that's what happens to people who, who are, are involved with us. They never know about the new wave of insanity that's going to wash up on our beach every day. <laughs> you know, uh, they have no idea. It goes down here. It says there was never financial security. Of course not. I was passing checks to whoever could take them because I had to pay not for crack, not for, uh, you know, heroin to uh, <laughs> stab into my vein. This was for uh, the, the contents of cellophane bags and bakery boxes, anything to create that sense of ease and comfort that I so desperately needed. The bottom line is my life was deteriorating faster than I could lower my standards. And this disease took anybody who was related to me, husband, parents, sibling, friends, colleagues, boss, neighbors, down the tube with me. Thank God for the program of recovery that comes along and produces a new person living a new way of life, and that's called a transformation, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, and thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Marsha, will you please read a vision for you? Yes. I'm Marsha, a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we only know a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.